Well, hello, Kindred Church. I am Lindsay, and I hope that you all enjoyed your Thanksgiving holiday and your long weekend. Uh, my whole family was here, so everybody came to my house this year for Thanksgiving. So we did the whole big dinner. I cooked my first turkey, which is a big deal. Yeah, I'm like, no one cheered the 645. I thought it was rude, but it's a big deal. I had a lot of help, but I feel pretty accomplished. Um, but aside from all of the food, uh, my favorite Thanksgiving tradition has always been to watch the Radio City Rockettes in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And I don't know if it's partly because I grew up dancing, but the Rockettes are the ultimate. Like they are just iconic and they are fabulous. And so I promise you, any little girl that has ever worn a pair of tap shoes has probably at some point dreamed about being a Radio City Rockette. They are just the goal, they're the dream. And so I watched the whole parade anticipating right, when they will finally arrive. And then that moment is always like magic because it's the Christmas music and they sparkle and they have the perfectly in sync routine. And then they do the famous kick line and like the crowd goes wild. And it's always in this moment that I kind of realize that it clicks for me that Christmas is almost here, that it is finally almost Christmas. And so the stores can be flooded with Christmas decor, which they have been since like October and people can have their lights up and their trees up. But for me, it's not really Christmas until I get to see the Rockettes. And it kind of cues this shift as we head towards December 25th. And so there is something special about this season leading up to Christmas. On most church calendars, this is known as the season of Advent. And Advent comes from a Latin word meaning coming or arrival. And it is signified by waiting as the world waited for the arrival of Jesus who would rescue us. And so as followers of Jesus, we live in kind of this strange time between two Advents, really, between the arrival of Jesus at his birth and also his triumphant return when he's to come again. And so for the next four weeks as a church, we will shift our focus to remember this long-awaited Messiah. And we'll be taking a look at the Christmas story from four different vantage points as it was written in the four different gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because each vantage point has something unique to teach us about waiting and about hope. So this year has definitely been strange and difficult for a lot of different reasons. But earlier this year, I was navigating some conflict with someone very close to me. We had a fight and all of the things we were not saying finally kind of exploded and erupted and it got ugly. And then we didn't quite know how to move forward from that point. Maybe you have been in a fight or a conflict like this. And so we took some space first to cool down and that space inevitably meant silence. And weeks kept going by and then that silence kept stretching on and weeks turned into months. And then I began to tell myself a story about this person's silence. I started to believe that their silence and their distance meant indifference, that they didn't care to mend this relationship or they really had nothing to say about what happened. 
I imagined that their life was carrying on as normal. Meanwhile, I was carrying around this sadness with me all the time underneath whatever else was going on. I imagined that this conflict was no bother to them while really it was consuming all of my thoughts and my prayers and my conversations. And I told myself in my waiting that this person really didn't want to be in my life anymore. Confirming this fear I had that I didn't even know I had, that this person might disappear or I might lose them. And so we eventually did break the silence. She finally called. And what I understand now after many tearful conversations is that her silence never meant indifference. And so while I was waiting, she was still processing. And while I waited, she was healing. And while I felt like all of this silence meant that we were stuck, that we were at a standstill and that this was going nowhere, God was actually working stuff out in both of us that was slowly moving us forward, forward towards forgiveness and reconciliation. Now I tell you this story because I think we also often do this with God too. We make up stories about his silence and we interpret it as his indifference or his inaction, that he is just unwilling to do anything or his abandonment that he has just left us and he's gone. We conclude that, well, maybe since we haven't heard much from him or we're still waiting on that prayer or that miracle or that opportunity, well, then he must not care. He must be doing nothing. And it certainly feels that way. It absolutely feels that way. And experiencing God's silence as his rejection, that can be excruciating and incredibly painful but it might just not be true. Like I found out earlier this year. And so the Christmas story, it offers us a different perspective. It gives us a reason to hope in seasons of silence and of waiting. And so tonight we're gonna explore this idea that God works while we wait, that he works while we wait. So we're going to be in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. If you have your Bible, you can flip there. You're going to want to bookmark it or like dog ear the page. Um, Also, if you want to use the QR code, that'll take you to the digital program. And then all the verses we use are always right there uh, for you to use as well. So usually we just kind of camp out in like one chapter or one story uh, within a book of the Bible, like we did with Genesis. But I just want to give you just a little heads up that we are going to flip back and forth a few times between some Old Testament verses and the book of Matthew. And it's not intended to give you whiplash or to overwhelm you or to just throw a bunch of verses at you. Um, But if you stick with it, I think you'll see why it's so important. And so this is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's the beginning of the part of the Bible that we call the New Testament. And it has been 400 years since God's people have heard anything from him. It's been 400 years and there hasn't been a single message from a prophet. There hasn't been one miraculous sign. There hasn't been a divine intervention to write about. This period of time is known as the 400 years of silence. And that's a lot of time. 
It's a lot of time to make up stories. Right, so imagine the stories that you might be making up about God's silence if you hadn't heard from him, if no one had heard from him for 400 years. And in God's people, the nation of Israel, it has fallen from this political power that it once held. They're now this antiquated people. They're kind of known and seen as this people of the past. And then the military power of Rome has kind of moved in and, and taken the center stage. And so now God's chosen people, they live in this ruthless and cruel dominion of the emperor. So they're an oppressed people. They are barely tolerated by the Romans. That is where the book of Matthew begins. And it starts like this. It reads, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. And Nashon was the father of Salmon, which is like the worst name in the list. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You might recognize some of those names. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because the names only get harder to pronounce. And this goes on for like 15 verses until finally we make it all the way down to verse 16, where it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so Matthew chooses to begin the entire New Testament with a genealogy, with this long, painstaking genealogy tracing Jesus's entire family tree. And it begs this question, why? Why? When I have gone to this story to read it before, I usually just like skip over the genealogy. I'm like, let's just get to the good stuff, right? The scandalous teenage pregnancy, the baby in a manger, and the wise men, like all the stuff we sing about at Christmas, right? Let's just get to all of that. But see, this is exactly what Matthew understood as a Jewish man living in the first century that I think we often miss, is that the genealogy is the good stuff. It's not needless or extra or superfluous, but Matthew is making this really important claim. Right? That's the point of any genealogy. They're intended to be evidence of someone's status or their pedigree. Right? They're usually used to defend someone's title or their claim, usually to royalty or to a crown. And so in our case, Matthew is proving Jesus's claim to the throne, that he is king above all kings. And this claim, it rests on these two names that he explicitly states in verse one, when he says that Jesus is descendant of David and of Abraham. So Abraham and David, they are these two great trustees of these promises made by God that directly relate to the Messiah. 
And so the first promise is this promise about blessing. And it was made to Abraham. And if you've been tracking with us for the last few months, well, then this will be very, very familiar to you. But back in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham this. He says, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. And then years after this, God makes a second promise, this time about dominion, about rule and reign to King David. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it reads, for when you, David, when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. So it was promised to Abraham and to David that Jesus would descend from them. And so unless it can be proved that Jesus is the son of David and he is a son of Abraham, well then this baby is just another baby and the world should really pay no attention to the story. But Matthew is making it clear, this baby isn't just any baby, but here is the proof. Right? Here is the bloodline going all the way back to David and then to Abraham revealing his claim to this title this title of Messiah, right, Messiah. It's a Hebrew word that when you translate it to Greek, we get the word Christ. And so Messiah means anointed king, Lord and ruler. It means God's appointed, God's chosen king. And so Jesus as the Messiah means that he is the one promised to Abraham and to David and to us that he really is the one we have all been waiting for. And Jesus is the Messiah. He won't only rule over Israel or over the Jewish people, but he will rule the whole world, right? He will bless and he will rule over all the families of the earth. And that is what makes him good news, not just to Israel, but to us too. So we can't skip the genealogy because Jesus didn't just appear out of the blue. He isn't random. And so to truly understand Jesus, we must also understand the story of his people, of Israel. The history of each of those names listed on that family tree that reaches all the way back to Genesis, to the very beginning. Because without it, without it, we forget that Jesus is tied to one people and to one heritage and to scripture. And his birth, this thing we are anticipating, it only makes sense as it relates to this larger story of God's people. We don't get Jesus without Israel. And Matthew's genealogy, it reminds us of that. This genealogy, it also brings into focus for us just how long God's people have spent waiting and expecting and anticipating rescue. Matthew's list, it spans 42 generations and nearly 2,000 years. 2,000 years. I think that amount of time, it can be difficult for us to really kind of conceptualize. We live in a nation that's establishment was only 245 years ago. 
right? This land's history reaches much farther than that. But I think for us as Americans living in the 21st century, it's sometimes difficult for us to just fathom like the kind of legacy, the kind of heritage that would stretch on for 2,000 years, like the nation of Israel. I see Jesus, he was promised to Abraham in the very first book of the Bible, before, before any of these people had reached this promised land that they were to live in and prosper in. And then a thousand years later, he's promised again to David when Israel is at the height of its power and its prestige. And it's not until a thousand years after that, that he finally arrives into this family of a poor carpenter when Israel is really on its decline. In all of those centuries of waiting, as Israel fell into exile, as they were scattered, as no one heard a single word from God for 400 years and they were brought under Roman rule, God was not indifferent to the anticipation of his people. He had not stopped caring, but he was in fact still working. While it might've seemed like God was inactive, he was moving this rescue mission forward so that it approached at just the right time. See, if we keep reading in the book of Matthew, we'll see the way that Jesus's birth story, it had to happen in this way at this time. And it confirms all of these divine predictions that we read about in the Old Testament. And it's this proof, it's this thread that God is still working and moving and bringing all of these things to fruition, even in his silence. So we're gonna pick up in Matthew chapter one, verse 18. It reads, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's not random. It happens this way because it was foreshadowed right, by this prophet Isaiah back in the Old Testament. Isaiah writes this, all right then, the Lord himself will give you the sign. And so look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Right? This had all been foretold. Right, so Jesus is born and then Herod, King Herod, hears of people now arriving in Jerusalem and they want to know about, they want to see, they want to hear about this newborn king of the Jews is what they were calling him. And so Matthew chapter two puts it this way. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And so he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And then they quote, they quote an Old Testament prophet to him. They quote Micah chapter five, verse two. They say, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are not the least among the ruling cities of Judah for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. And then Herod puts out this hit on this newborn King Jesus. And it forces Mary and Joseph on the run with their baby. So this is now Matthew chapter two, verse 14. It says, that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. 
This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. And that was originally spoken by the prophet Hosea. Right? So all, all of these prophecies being highlighted by Matthew in his retelling of the story, they are revealing something to us. That in order for all of these things to happen just as they did, for a son to be born to a virgin in Bethlehem and for them to then have to leave to Egypt, right? Where Jesus would then live as a boy. This would have to mean that God is still at work, right? While he was silent, generations were continuing the line of Abraham and David, eventually reaching Mary and Joseph. And while God was silent, he was positioning Herod to rule, who would then have to run Mary and Joseph right out of Bethlehem and into Egypt. And so while it may have looked like God had abandoned his people, Jesus was on the way all along because God works while we wait. This is the hope of Advent. The story of Christmas, it reminds us that Israel waited centuries for rescue, for the Messiah, Right, for this true king that would reign and rule and that would bring heaven to earth. That it took generation after generation to finally see these promises come true in the person and in the life of Jesus. And it reminds us right, that our waiting isn't futile. That God has not stopped working and moving. That his silence, it is not his indifference or his rejection, or his abandonment of you. And so it's my prayer then that this hope, that it might relieve some of that sting in your own waiting as you anticipate that answer to prayer, or as you anticipate that miracle, or as you wait for that loved one to return home, right? That you would be comforted by this truth that God works while you and I wait. And that that would give you maybe just enough strength and just enough courage to keep on waiting, even if it's just another day. So Kindred, would you stand and would you pray with me tonight? God, I'm thankful that you are good and that you are kind and that you are powerful. God, each of us has experienced our own kind of waiting. God, and with that usually comes pain and some heartbreak and longing and confusion. And so God, I am thankful for this story of your son, Jesus, and his incredible arrival. God, and this long list this long genealogy that that shows us, God, that your silence and our waiting, it does not mean that you have turned your back on us. It doesn't mean that you have left us or that you no longer care, God, but it shows us you have been moving and working all along. So God, ultimately I pray tonight that we would be comforted, that we would feel at peace about what it is we are waiting for or waiting in, knowing God, that you are still moving, that you are still at work. God, I pray that that would give us strength to face tomorrow and to face however long this wait 
lasts. Jesus, thank you for coming, for your arrival. We love you and we need you. And I pray this in your name. Amen.